Um, we're continuing our journey through the book of Habakkuk. We're going to finish chapter two this morning. This is the remainder of what God is saying in response to Habakkuk's second complaint. Now remember, remember, let's keep the whole story in view if we can, right? Remember that Habakkuk initially goes to God and from the language that Habakkuk uses, it's not the first time. He's a prophet. He's talked to God often, but it's reached a, a, a tipping point for Habakkuk. Not that he could necessarily do anything, but he's sincerely crying out to the Lord because the, the, the nation of Israel, Judah, has descended into darkness and are not glorifying the Lord with their actions. The way that they're treating each other, shedding each other's blood, stealing from one another, treating, mistreating the poor, mistreating the marginalized, mistreating the widow and the orphan has drawn his prophetic ire. And so he turns to the Lord and he cries out and he says, Lord, why are you blind to this? Why do you, first of all, why do you make me see it? And yet you seem not to, and you don't seem to be doing anything about it. And so God responds, if you remember, and he says, I'm going to take care of it, Habakkuk. In fact, I, I've prepared a people as an instrument of judgment, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're going to sweep in and they're going to take care of business. If they want blood, we're going to give them blood. And Habakkuk steps back and he says, Lord, of all that I know about you, remember how we learn that one of the things we want to do when we're questioning or when we're doubting or when we're struggling with circumstances is always return to what you know to be true right? For those of you in here uh, that are students or, or children of any kind, if you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. Always, always return to what you know to be most true and work from there. Because otherwise you will get tangled up in any of the, the, the just myriad of ideas that are going to be thrown at you and you will be so confused that you will not be able to find your way. But Habakkuk teaches us that it, all of us, when we're struggling, and given our world, we should struggle, by the way. I hope that's what you're also seeing, is that the struggle is worth it. That there is a sense in which God desires for his people to look at the world and say, it ought not be this way. Something is broken and ought to be fixed. Just like Linda Maffet, as she goes down to Haiti, she is asking the question, Lord, what would you have us to do? This ought not to be this way. Kristen Wagner is asking the very same question as she goes to Zimbabwe and looks at the condition of the children. In fact, she confessed she had such a struggle when she came back the first time just trying to, to, to reconcile how is it that we can live this way in America. And yet there are people in this world who, who live under such difficult circumstances. I recently watched an episode, and don't judge me for this, by the way. I know Bill Maher produced it. And I don't think he's all bad. And I'm praying for him to come to Jesus, by the way. The show is called Vice, but it was looking at the conditions in India concerning water. Now, I, I don't know if you know how, how incredibly difficult it is to get clean water in India, but it is, it, it's, it's mind-blowing. Whereas we take for granted, I'm going to walk up to the tap, turn it on, I'm going to get water. And if I don't, I'm sending an incendiary email to somebody. Where in India, that's not... That's not possible. What happens in some of the areas where the Dalits live, if you know who they are, they're the untouchables. A water truck will pull up into this horrific set of circumstances that is just covered in sewage. And the pipes that they use to get the clean water, guess where the pipes lay? In sewage. And then they pick the pipe up and they shove it down into the water container. What did you just do to the water? 
that you so desperately need. You just infected it. You destroyed any opportunity to get true clean water, but they don't care. They'll take whatever they can get. And interestingly, and don't judge me for this either, in the new movie Mad Max Fury Road, that is part of the issue as well. What was interesting to me about the scene with the water is I had just watched it in real time in India. It's not just a movie. This is real life. And so there are people who are struggling with things that we ought to look at the world and say it ought not be like this. And that's not just over there. It's here too, isn't it? We should look at the perspective that we have on abortion or our elderly or the disabled or any of the people groups that are marginalized in our society. And we ought to point and say it ought not be this way. The undereducated, those who live in sub-third world circumstances like Appalachia or the inner city or any of the circumstances where there are generationally poor neighborhoods who are continuing to collapse in on themselves. Instead of us saying, well, that's just politics. We ought to say, no, it shouldn't be this way. And what can we do, Lord? How can we be instruments of redemption prior to the instrument of judgment that may need to come? So God appreciates when we, his people, come before him and say, Lord, how might things change even if we press against him first and charge him with it? He's big enough to handle that, and he's big enough to answer you. And so he does. He tells Habakkuk, I'm going to take care of this. And Habakkuk says, but I, what I know about you, this, that doesn't match, Lord. But I know you're sovereign, and if it's your instrument, you will dictate how far that instrument can go, and I trust you. I will stand my watch until you have answered me, and when you have, I'll have a word of comfort for the people because I am your prophet. He is exhibiting faith in the midst of overwhelming doubt and suffering, something that we should learn from. Too often, we're afraid to even ask the questions or enter the fray where God longs to be faithful and love on us and teach us something deep about who he is. We're all too content to live with the trivialized version of who we think God is or isn't. So Habakkuk is learning deep about who God is. And remember, God responds to his second complaint, and he makes clear that Habakkuk understands this is not an issue of nationality. It's an issue of Faith and, what's the antithesis? Someone help me out. Arrogance. I, I've been doing the read through the Bible in a year deal, and I, I, I am overwhelmed at the number of times that God describes his enemies as arrogant. And he describes the problem as pride. I'm also stunned by how often and how little it is about questioning and doubt. He doesn't seem to have issues with that near as much or really at all, as he does with arrogance and pride, which says, I don't have any questions. I don't need to. I am self-sovereign. I'll take it from here. And so, he says, the issue, Habakkuk, that you need to write plain on the tablet so that anybody running by could see and understand is there's one way to live. If you want to be righteous, if you want to live through this, you will do it by your faith alone. But if you want to be arrogant and go your own way, you will perish in your gluttony, in your uh, uh, ignorance, in your failure to understand that what you're engaging in, the greed, the, the wine, the debauchery, it has no end. It has no satiation. It will consume you and there will be nothing left. 
And so God is going to continue this morning to speak to us and further describe exactly who the arrogant are. Now, I want you to recognize that this is an act of grace. Why would this be an act of grace for God to make very clear who the arrogant are? Lest you would become arrogant and perish in the way. How gracious is our God that he would say, I want you to clearly understand who you are to be and who you are not to be. And so this morning, he's going to help us further understand. And my prayer for us is though this may grate on some of you, though you may have some questions, though you may wrestle with some of what gets said here, my prayer is that you would do it in faith, that you would take the time to try to Try to first and foremost go before the Spirit in prayer and say, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? If this has bothered me, then you're stirring something in your spirit. And then from there, if you think it was a personal attack from me, to have the courage to come to me and say, hey, Cameron, were you, were you targeting me? And I'll tell you, if I was or I wasn't. And, and we, can, we can hash through that, but let's make sure that we do it biblically. Not in emotion, not in sentiment, not in tradition, but in true biblical fashion. I pray that we would be a people who would long for the Lord to show us where we are arrogant and where we can grow in faith so that we could know him better. Amen? All right. So, the main thing that I want us to take away this morning <coughs> is this. This is the big idea or the key truth. What and how we gain, build, and worship in this life affects those around us and will be judged against the knowledge of the glory of God that will one day fill the earth. Let me say that again, and I know that's a slightly awkward sentence for you English majors, but it was meant to be awkward so as to rattle you so as to think more about it. What and how we gain, build, and worship in this life affects those around us and will be judged against the knowledge of the glory of God that will one day fill the earth. As an opening question, I would ask you this, um, and, I, and I think it's a very pertinent question and it's a very deep question um, and requires for us as Christians to wrestle with it. And, and that is, what constitutes justice? I mean, who gets to decide what is just and what is not? Right? I mean, isn't this one of the fundamental questions of our time? Isn't it why Baltimore exploded for whatever you think's going on there? At the bottom of it, yes, there's a bunch of goofy people taking advantage of the situation, but there are some people asking, and if you know anything about Baltimore, this is the fundamental question. Who gets to decide what is justice? Is it whoever gains control of popular opinion? How hard is that to do? How hard is it to turn and sway popular opinion? All you need is a, a Twitter account, a few thousand followers. Maybe get somebody who's famous to retweet you like John Foreman or Dan Hazeltine. And all of a sudden, you've got a cottage industry on your hands. So who gets to decide what is ultimately just? Because let me, let me put it before you, because if you were a German in Germany in the 30s and 40s, remember what justice was. Justice was the absolute destruction 
of, of the Jews because they were the problem, right? They were the, they were the reason that the fatherland was in the condition it was in, according to the Germans. And again, whose justice and by which rationality? Remember, if you were in, let's say, Russia during Stalin's period, remember the problem was those who opposed communism, which included and primarily were the Christians. So the justice, the only way justice could be done was to eradicate them, to remove them in toto. Remember that in frontier America, the justice was to remove all of those savages who were in the way of our progress our Darwinian flow. Thus you had the trail of tears, wounded knee, and many, many places where we were, in fact, the invading ones. Or we could come up to the Civil War and how we treated different groups of people, particularly those that we had bought and, and sold as slaves. But, but here's what I want to make sure that we think about in terms of this question, what is just. Before you can even ask that question, you must ask, what's the rationale? What are the presuppositions? What's underneath it all? Because if your rationale is this, those people, Jews, Indians, African Americans, any of these groups of people, they're subhuman. Then you can see where it's an easier step to say it's just to treat them subhuman, right? This is why it becomes incredibly important that we look underneath the narrative and look for the origin. What, what's the fundamental thing driving all this? Because it's the rationality that actually creates the justice. Now, why am I getting into all this? Well, I would hope that as Christians, we would be some of the most deeply thought people on the planet who look below the narrative and ask, hey, wait a minute, before I go siding with whatever this cause may be, what's the rationale and where will it lead? What justice will it impose? Because as a Christian, there's but one rationale and there's but one justice. And there's only one who can determine either one of those things if in fact you are a Christian. To allow anyone else to decide those things for you is for you to become a slave of whatever that is. And I don't know about you, but Christ didn't die to put you in slavery to the state. He did not die to put you in slavery to the culture. He didn't die to put you in slavery to the cause. He died for you to be set free and free indeed. To glorify the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as you would never be able to do outside of that freedom. That's what he came to do. That's the rationale. And only God can determine what is just and think about it. It makes sense. If God is real, and I argue that he is, I've kind of staked a whole lot on that, by the way, and he is holy, that's critical. Most of the time, our first move position is God is love. No, far long before he is love, he is holy. It is his love that comes out of his holiness and makes it stronger than the filter down version that we've come up with, by the way. But his holiness, that, that purity is what allows him to de decide this is just and that is not. 
Only the one who created it, only the one who can control it, only the one who truly is pure and understands, unfettered, uncontrolled by anything else can decide what is just. That should make reasonable sense to you because otherwise, again, I would ask you, who's justice, which rationality? If you were to fall into the hands of cannibals, their rationale is their God has provided them with a meal. And it would only be just to eat you as a result of their God providing them with a meal. Whose justice, which rationality? And so often our justice, our rationale is horrifically selfish and self-serving. And we have to we have to confess that, don't we? Because that is the first move toward pride, isn't it? To think that we get to decide what is just, what is rational, apart from the word of the Lord our God. If you would, hear this quote from James Oliver Buswell. I've quoted him before, and Sam Larson is responsible for me knowing who this man is. He told me to buy his systematic theology and read it cover to cover. I have not yet fulfilled that commitment, but I made it this far. Listen to what James Oliver Buswell says. He says, justice is the outgoing of God's holiness. Now, I just want to pause right there for a second. That is a critical thing for us to understand, that God's justice is not based on emotion. It is not based on him kind of figuring things out as it goes. It's not based on, on whether or not you're good or they're good or who's good. No, it is based purely upon his holiness, which is fixed and unchanging. That's crucial. Justice is the outgoing of God's holiness with reference to moral or immoral creatures. If the creature were entirely harmonious with God's holiness, it would follow from God's justice that the creature would be in perfect fellowship with God. But if the creature is, as we know he is, fearfully self-corrupted, it follows that God must be hostile to his corruption. Since the creature is unholy and unjust, it follows that God in his justice must vindicate his holy character and maintain his creation as an expression of that holy character. And what in the world did James just say? Well, here's what he said basically. If God is truly just, then he cannot, and he's holy, then he cannot allow for corruption to reign. Now, what did, what did God do in sending Christ? What did he lay an end to? Why is it that we can truly say we're in the end of times? Because Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father and all sad things are coming untrue as we draw closer to the last advent of Christ. Now, as you look around the world, what do you see? Well, you see the same thing the author of Hebrews sees in chapter 2. He says, my, my, Jesus might be reigning, but it sure don't look like it right now. And some of that may be because we're looking in some of the wrong places, to be quite honest with you. And we like to consume the negative we have fallen prey to the culture, which is their rationale, which ultimately drives our, our ideas on justice. Now, am I seeming to suggest that bad things are not happening? <laughs> no. If you know me, you know better than that. But what I am suggesting is this, is that Christ's coming signals the end. The end for all that is unholy. It signals judgment to those who are the enemies of God. It signals an end to pride and arrogance that will one day wrap up 
But here's the even better news. Is God quick to strike in judgment? No, remember who he is. He is slow to anger, steadfast in love, forgiving iniquity to the generations, to thousands and thousands, telling sin it can only go so far. Remember Exodus 34. First, or Second Peter 3, he says, he's not tarrying because he's lost control. He tarries because he longs for the family to get bigger. He tarries because he wants less pride and more faith. And so this just God, we must remember as we read these things that he truly is just. And when he strikes at the heart of our pride, it is to set us free, not to bury us, not to destroy us. Remember Ezekiel 18 where he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Remember that both are true. So as we approach this text, <clears throat> I want you to pay close attention to what he might be saying to your own heart and some of the areas where pride might be lurking such that it is keeping you from being able to love your neighbor and to worship well. Let's turn to the text. We'll start with verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence in the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I want to take just a moment to point out a couple of things to you. Last week, if you remember, I went on a little bit of what some have described as a minor tirade about worship. Okay, so I want to clarify a couple things. Remember the context. What we're talking about is the arrogance that creeps into our heart, right? And how, we, how trivializing the things of the Lord is very devastating to us. So let me make very, very clear what I was not saying. Was I saying that you, I don't care under what circumstances, cannot get up and go to the bathroom once the service starts if you need to go to the bathroom? Is that what I said? No, that is not what I said. We have pregnant women in here. We have women who've had multiple children. We have men my age. We have all kinds of circumstances that might require you at some point to take leave and come back. Did I say that if you weren't in here by the time the service starts and you turn your tail around and go home? Is that what I said? No, I ain't what I said. I said, this is what I said, okay? I said, what is your heart in all this? What is your mindset in all of this compared to some of the other cultural things that you make sure that you don't miss? 
It's not about your behavior. And if you think that it bothers me for you to get up and wander around and do all kinds, you're not going to sway me one bit. I've preached in much more difficult circumstances where we had a police officer that would escort people out mid-service. So you're not going to bother me at all. My, my concern is what bothers you in your heart. What is keeping you from being able to, in faith, outside of pride and arrogance, be able to enjoy the Lord your God? And so, so I just want to point out why the whole service is important. Let's take it all the way back to Psalm 11, which was our call to worship this morning. Now, some of you, if you were paying attention, it ended with a question which was kind of weird. But the purpose of that psalm is to say this. Are the arrogant able to make fun of the righteous? Do they have control over what's going to happen to the righteous? Just because the arrogant speaks, should I, like a little bird, fly away in fear? Is this what the righteous should do? And at the end of the service, we're going to read the rest of that psalm together. And we're going to see that the answer is no. No, it's not the arrogant who are able to make fun of us. Also, take note of, of the passage that we read from Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, how those who are circumcised thought they could declare who and what we are. You are the uncircumcision. You are out. And what does God say? God says, no, I have brought you near. And they do not have the ability to say who and what you are. I do. They are arrogant. And so as we come to this text this morning, and then notice the songs that we sang. After that, after that call to worship that ended with the question, and, and, and it looked like Philip walked off the stage in protest and refused to pray. It wasn't that. I don't think it had anything to do with that. But it was actually providential. I'm glad he didn't because it left us hanging in the air with that question, what should the righteous do? And what did we sing? Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. If you tarry until you're able, you'll never come at all. And then we sang about the love of God. That's what the righteous do. They turn to their Savior. They cling to the crucified. They receive what God promised them in their faith. Amen? That's okay. You can speak. It's a Presbyterian church. But we allow that. Thank you for doing that, by the way. And you get three more if you want to use them. And so, so here's the thing. All of that meant that, so we didn't just randomly, it wasn't like we were at the office and we were like, we got a big dartboard with songs on it. And we're like, all right. Oh, love of God this morning. Providence, like casting runes or something. That's not how we do it. We really try to think through it. It really, really matters to us, the whole of the service. And so what's beautiful about that is we then get to approach this. We even sang Psalm 73. That's straight from the psalm where it talks about the confusion. Sometimes we think that the arrogant have it better than we do. And so as we come to this text, with all those things kind of hanging in the air, what's the first thing that we read? Shall not all these, meaning the righteous, take up their taunt against him, meaning the arrogant, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to you, five times over. So it's not the arrogant who have anything to say to us. It's us who have something to say to the arrogant. And we are to say it. Why? So that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. Meaning either their redemption or their destruction. Now, I don't want this for them. I would much rather say it in hopes that they would repent. 
But let me confess something to you. I spend far more of my time worried about how the arrogant might say something about me, how they may taunt me, how they may not like me, how they may disregard me as a zealot. To me, I act as if that's the worst possible thing that can be said. And yet, what does the scriptures say? Better it would be said of you to be a righteous man because the just shall live by faith. And so that's why I think it's critically important that we come with our hearts prepared and expectant and every part of the service is important to us because it all fits together for the purpose of the glory of God so that we could come to know him better. So, Let's pick up with the woes and what they mean. First woe, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Now, this becomes critically important for us to consider in how we do business. For those of you who do business, how do you do business? Does God care about how you do business? You better believe he does. You better believe he does, and there's no darkness in which you can slip into and do something saying that the ends justify the means for now. No, they do not. It's haywood and stubble, and someday it will be burned and exposed by fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 10. So it becomes critical that even how we do business, that we recognize that one of the ways in which the arrogant are demarcated is they think they can do whatever they want, that they can get away with murder. Remember in the Psalms often where it says, we do whatever we want. Does God see us? You better believe he does. And the only reason he hasn't killed you on the spot is because he's gracious and patient and long-suffering and kind. And so we as those who claim the faith should reflect even in how we do everything we do business-wise. How we work, how we do all that we do, we should go above and beyond to make sure that what we do would be pleasing to and glorifying to God if everybody in the room knew it. And maybe you're thinking, well, Cameron, you don't know my business. You don't know what I have to do for a living, brother. You don't know how it works because you're, you're a preacher. Pfft, what do you know? Well, I did manage two clinics in the healthcare industry, which is one of the most cutthroat, thieving, conniving things that there ever was. We just figure out smarter ways around it, hoping that we can extend it far enough that when Medicare catches us, we'll be on to another job. It'll be somebody else's problem. I didn't do that, so don't, don't look at me that way. I fought hard to do it the other way, and the Lord blessed it amazingly. In both circumstances where I served as a clinical director, I did submit myself and say, Lord, I want to honor and glorify you. And we had some hard times, but the Lord blessed us, and we made it through. Such that we won the customer service award for the nation. We actually made more money than any other clinic in the nation. We did amazingly well. And all I did was practice basic principles. I didn't market the first minute. So I'm saying to you, I understand. And if you're in a place where you're wrestling and you're going, hey, I don't know how to, I don't know how to undo this, come and seek counsel. Don't think that you are caught in something that you cannot get out of because God who loves you will provide the way. 
It's not to say that it won't hurt, not to say there won't be consequences. But we should, in all that we do, seek to honor. So the way we do what we do, what we build, should be incredibly important that it would glorify the Lord our God. In the second woe, he says, Woe to him who gets his evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Is this not square within who we are in our culture? Are we not idolaters of safety and security? Are we not, would we not suggest that the ends would justify the means as long as me and my family are safe? As long as we're safe, the whole world can burn. I couldn't care less. What's God say is going to happen to you? Even the rocks and the beams in your house will someday cry out in judgment against you. There is nothing that you can, you cannot save yourself from the problem within. You cannot secure yourself against the problem within. For those of you who are parents, please hear me. You, I don't care how hard you try, you cannot parent your child out of original sin or whatever kind of sin you want to call it. You, I don't care what you do, I don't care what you set up, you could put them in one of those Michael Jackson bubbles and they're still going to find a way to be sinful in the bubble because they're going to think that the whole world is about them. And is that not pride? Isn't that the very heart of the thing that God says is antithetical to faith? And so you will be contributing to their destruction. Be very careful as a parent that you don't fall into this very trap that you think that somehow, some way, you can protect your children from what lies deep within them and that you can do what only Christ can do. And the third woe, he says, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Again, if you're going to build by violence, if you're going to build by all of these uh, negative ways, then it will fall. Think about what this may be hearkening back to in Genesis 11. What was built in Genesis 11 that fell? The Tower of Babel, the people were scattered. Remember what their ideology was. To heck with the rest of the world. We'll Get together on the plane at Shinar. We'll build a temple to heaven and we'll control God. We'll have control of everything. We're going to be fine. And where did they find themselves? Babbling fools scattered among the nations. So what we build, how we build it, becomes critically important. And it also indicates that we should be building things in this world, that we should be contributing good business, that we should be helping people be free from the tyranny of debt and loan and lack of ownership and uprootedness. The, the, the opposite of these things is for us to be ambassadors of reconciliation everywhere that we are. Paige Sliman and I have talked a pretty good bit about how he, as a real estate agent, has an awesome opportunity to be a blessing to so many because he's helping them find the place where they could serve as ambassadors of reconciliation in a neighborhood or on a cul-de-sac or whatever it may be. And he's also helping them not get tangled up because there are so many within any industry, but in, in that one, as, as all the rest of them, there are people trying to take advantage of everyone. And he, beautifully, is a fierce shepherd of those whom he serves. It's kind of shocking at times, but I appreciate it. 
And, I've, I, and, and so I, I, not just him, but all of you, all of the things that you are doing in this world, each of you has an opportunity to, to build something that will last, not with haywood and stubble, contribute something that will be meaningful. Why? The most important part. Look again at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Here, here's the deal. Regardless of what we do, the earth is going to be filled with the glory of God. My question to you is, on which side of that would you rather be? Would you rather that what you have done would survive the fire that would not be built with haywood and stubble, but be built with significant things, this 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15? Would, would, you, would you rather that the Lord be pleased with you and the things that you've done and that he could say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Are we talking about perfection here? Am I talking about you guys being perfect? Hardly. Hardly. I know better. I know myself better. But the question is, does it matter to us at all? Or do we arrogantly think that, look, Cameron, you ought to be happy. I just showed up this morning, man. I mean, come on. I've done my duty for the week. Don't I have the other six days to live like I want to? Don't you listen to country music? No, I don't, as a matter of fact. <coughs> no disrespect to those who do. But here's, the, here's the, the critical piece of the puzzle is where do we want for the things that we have built, the things that we are engaging in, what do we want it to represent? Because you're representing something whether you like it or not. And so you have to ask these deep questions of yourself. What are you gaining and building in this life? How are you doing it? Is it consistent with the holiness and justice and rationality of God? And this is a great question. Will it remain? See, I think that too often in Christianity, we've kind of had this mindset that everything's going to burn by fire anyway, bro. I don't care. I don't care what we do in this world. It's all going to burn by fire. Well, if that, if that is ultimately the only thing that is true, then what we should do is all go by a commune together and just wait for Jesus to come back and disengage from this fallen world so we wouldn't be at risk anymore. But because what we do matters between the now and the not yet, then we should think different. We should think deeper. If you would hear this quote from O. Palmer Robertson um, from his commentary on Habakkuk, listen to what he says. He says, The certitude of vanity, the pointlessness of people's oppressive ways that build seemingly stable and worthwhile communities rests on the unchanging word of God that Habakkuk now quotes. Their consumption in the fire of God's judgment is not guaranteed simply by the rise and fall of many previous civilization, civilizations. Instead, it is the oath of Yahweh himself that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh that guarantees the vanity and the futility of all efforts to the contrary. Did you hear what he just said? He said, all of that stuff that you are building that does not display the glory of God, it will be destroyed and it will not last. And that's good news to us who so often fear that the arrogant will win. He goes on to say, beauty and song and dance and literature and architecture all to the glory of God shall fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me that one day that this world will so be filled with the knowledge of the glory of our God that it will be so beautiful that everywhere we look will be this just impressive and amazing creative thing. I don't even know how to comprehend what that's going to look like. But I know what it won't look like. It won't look like any of these things, woe to us, that we would build by these methods, by these ways. Let's turn back to the text to close out. <laughs> Beginning in verse 15. Woe to him, this is the fourth woe, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So the fourth woe says that if we, if we are going to seek to expose our neighbors instead of fight for their righteousness and fight for their reputations, that ultimately that's going to lead to our exposure. Now maybe you say, I don't, I don't ever help my neighbors get drunk and see them naked. I don't do that. Well, let me tell you how you do expose them. Do you, do you gossip? Do you ever lay bare their shenanigans to your other neighbors or anybody else you know? Do you, ever, do you ever go to somebody and say, hey, did you hear Cameron went and saw Mad Max this week? Ugh, what's wrong with that guy? Post-apocalyptic craziness. Did you, did you hear what happened? Did you hear about how he left because he met his eighth grade sweetheart online and now he lives in Kentucky and he left his wife. She's got MS. They've got three kids. True story, by the way. Did you hear? Did you hear? Like, so I want you to understand that this, this exposing, this laying bare is any time that you take the sin of someone else and put it on display for others to behold. Tell me how God is ever glorified when we do that. Tell me, if, if you've got an instance where you can come to me and say, dude, I was sharing this person's sin and debauchery with somebody, and it was amazing, man. We had worship. We, it broke out in revival. Now, we're not talking about calling sin to account. We're talking about just talking about it. What's interesting about the scriptures is it says that which is done in darkness ought not even be spoken of in the light. Trust me, I am convicted to my core. I am far too guilty. And just because we call it a prayer request doesn't make it any better, by the way. So please be careful that you recognize that exposing others for your gain will only come to harm you. That the cup that Christ drank on your behalf, no, you will in fact drink because you're arrogant. And then he goes on to talk about idolatry, which many of us say, well, I don't make little wooden idols and try to talk to them. But do you ever fashion God in your image? Do you ever try to reduce him to who you are or to your wants or your needs? 
you ever disregard something he says in his word because you just, you think it's out of fashion, just doesn't seem to fit? Now, hear me rightly, I've been reading through Leviticus and Numbers, and there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm confused about and concerned about. But praise God, Christ has fulfilled all that stuff, so I don't have to answer it in full. But I still have questions. But is there stuff that you just disregard? I don't need to do that. Declaring yourself a God who gets to decide what is his rationale, what is his justice. We need to be very, very careful because though these things may not on the front end seem like things that we do, I'm here to tell you we are guilty of all five at some point. And we need to be very cognizant of how we're guilty of all five. We need to be very quick to repent and seek God's forgiveness that has already been granted to us past, present, and future in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, so that we can live. Again and again and again, I love how the scripture talks about that faith and righteousness is life and not death. I bring these things to your attention in hopes that you would have life more abundant and be able to repent from them and to look long at your heart. And I would, I would pray that you would have the courage this Lord's Day. I don't want you to wait till Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, but this Lord's Day, that you would take these five and go before the Lord and say, Lord, you have made it clear, woe to the people who do these things. How do I do these things? Would your spirit expose that darkness within me so that I can repent and be transformed further into the image of Christ so that I would know life more abundant. If you don't have the courage to do that, that begs another question, doesn't it? To ask motivation. Ask the Lord to expose. Beautifully, again, the Lord wraps this section up by saying that those idols who cannot speak, who are made in your image, who you have formed in your own likeness, who cannot serve you, you need to just fall silent because I have something to say to you. And it has been said. So this is why I think it is so critical that we be cognizant of our attitude, our heart as we come into worship, whether it's here at Christ Community Church or wherever it is you may go that you would recognize, are you trivializing something that ought not be trivialized? That to trivialize it is to actually diminish yourself because you were created in its image. Remember, you cannot trivialize God in whose image you are created without thus trivializing yourself and diminishing yourself. And my hope is, is that we would recognize that we don't come together on Sunday morning. This is not you yet again ratifying your faithfulness, by the way. You being here is not, doesn't make me necessarily feel better about myself as a pastor. I mean, I'm glad you're here, so don't hear me wrongly, but that's not the point. The point is not for you to show up and say, look, I was faithful three Sundays in a row. It's got to be a record somewhere, right? that's got nothing to do with it. No, what, what this is, you got six other days to display your faithfulness. Six. Six to prove if you're an ambassador of reconciliation or if you live by faith. No, this day, this day, this Lord's day is where you come and you recognize that the Lord is in his temple and you fall silent. 
and you bear witness to his faithfulness, to his steadfastness, to his long-suffering, to his forgiveness, to his goodness, sovereignty, omniscience. This is not a place for you to be seen and heard. Does that mean I said we can't talk? No, come on. But what I'm saying is, what's your attitude in coming? Are you coming to bear witness to the goodness of God? Are you coming in hopes of someone seeing yours? Think about how, for me as a preacher who has to do all the talking up here, how sometimes that can be the hardest part, that I'm overly, I can be overly concerned with all of the things related to me. But I can honestly tell you that one of the most freeing things that has ever been given to me is this truth. And that I can repent of whatever I didn't get right, but I trust the Lord who is sovereign to take care of it. If I have done, if I have done my faithfulness the other six days, I surely can bear witness to his goodness on this one. Amen? So as we close out, I want you to hear from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor. Look up to God. Look at the ultimate and the absolute. Then let us put our hands upon our mouths that are so ready to speak foolishly. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But isn't it true? How quick are we to jump into some, uh, how many angels on the head of a pen? The Bible code. I think we can figure out when Jesus is coming back, even though he doesn't know. What? Maybe, some, maybe we should be quicker to put our hands over our mouths because we're so ready to speak so foolishly. Let us realize that he is there in the temple of the universe, God over all. Let us silently humble ourselves and bow down before him and worship him. Let us magnify his grace, his might, his power, his goodness, and in quiet peace of heart and mind and soul wait for him. So what is being exposed in and through your life? If, 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 if somebody had to figure out on which side of the coin you are, arrogant or, or, or of faith, what would they, if they got to follow you around, not you at your most beautiful, but you in traffic on 75, you are, and I'm not talking about perfection here, but, but what would they hear? If and when you do mess up and you will, how do you respond? What do you evidence? Do you arrogantly not care? Do you think it doesn't matter? So what is your life exposing and what does your worship reveal about what is most primary in your life? What, what does it reveal? Because it does. You're revealing all kind of stuff and you just don't know it. You have no earthly idea who's paying attention to you. This was brought to my attention uh, when I worked at Ortho, Georgia. I had a boss, and I think I've mentioned him there before. He's kind of like Steve Carell from The Office, just, just really out of bounds on a lot of things. Um, but he and I became great friends, and he actually became a believer over time as we walked together. But when he left, I was stunned by the number of people who celebrated his leaving. People who he never interacted with, who I would have thought never even saw him. From the lady who cleaned the bathrooms at night, they were just saying, I am glad that son of a gun is gone. He was a horrible human being. And I hated that for him because, because of who he was becoming. I knew who he was, 
But in his transformation in Christ, they just get, didn't get to see all that. But it was amazing to me how many people had watched him. And it really began to make me <laughs> kind of think about, oh, goodness, <laughs> what will they say when I leave? I didn't ask, by the way, because I didn't want to know. But you are revealing things to people you don't even know. So as we close this out, listen to what Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says in a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary of Sin. He's a, a, an American scholar up in Michigan. He says, to be a responsible person is to find one's role in the building of shalom. You guys know what shalom is? That's, the, that's God's peace, uh, and it's bigger than that. But uh, uh, anyway, the building of shalom, the rewebbing of God, humanity, and all creation in justice, harmony, fulfillment, and delight. To be a responsible person is to find one's own role and then, funded by the grace of God, to fill this role and delight in it. If you are of faith, you are called as an ambassador of reconciliation to participate in the rebuilding, to participate in the going forward, the, to participate in the rewebbing of these things. And he has gifted you, each of you uniquely. And think about how much more you as a group can accomplish versus me, an individual. This is why I see my calling as the equipping of the saints. And I want to say to you again, if there's any way that I can serve you in equipping you to better do this, my phone number's on the website, my email's on the website, I have cards in my pocket, I am here to be poured out for your benefit in this regard. I am open for lunch. I am open for breakfast. There's people I meet at 6 in the morning. There's people I meet late in the evenings. I'm never too busy to invest in this regard. It is my calling because it's your calling. So how do we apply all this? God's response in 2, 6 through 20 teaches us that how and what we gain and build has a significant impact on both us and our neighbors between now and not yet. How and what we gain and build should be consistent with the knowledge of God's glory given that it will one day fill the earth. That needs to be important to us. We need to ask of what we do, how does this glorify the Lord our God? And how and what we worship exposes who we really are before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> thank you so much for being in your temple. Thank you for being in control. Thank you that those who would set out to be arrogant and to destroy and to build by blood and violence and iniquity and expose things and serve false God, thank you that they are not in control. Thank you that we are not in control. Thank you that it is by your justice, which is through the rationality of your holiness, that we are able to be made righteous in Christ alone, by faith alone, through your grace alone. Thank you that you have gifted to us your Holy Spirit to help us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, that we have not been left to figure it out for ourselves. Thank you for your word that speaks so deep into the darker parts of our soul. May we have courage this day to seek to be exposed in the light of your healing grace longing to glorify you with all that we are. God, thank you that you have met with us this day, that we have much to bear witness of, of you that is good. Thank you that we have questions and you have answers. Thank you, Lord, that you have been so good to us to bring us together this day to celebrate 
you. In Christ's name, amen.